Oh, hey, everybody. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those of you who are watching online, thank you again for watching us and, and all of you under the tent as well. We're so glad you're here. You know, today's message has been one that has been on my heart to give and to, to share with you uh, for a couple of months now. And so I'm excited to be here to share God's word with you. And uh, so I want to open up our time in a word of prayer, all right? Before we jump in, grab a Bible uh, and uh, we're going to jump in and We'll see what God has to say to us. But let me open up our time in prayer. Well, Father, thank you so much. Man, it is, it is so refreshing. It is so encouraging. It is so inspiring to be at church this morning. Thank you, God, so much for giving us this opportunity to gather. Thank you, Father, for our family uh, who are watching online. They're all over the country, perhaps all over the world. And we're so thankful that they're out there as well, part of our SBCC family. And uh, Lord God, today's message... Um, it's something that you put on my heart a while ago, and it's just kind of a burden, God, that uh, you've put there. And so I pray this morning that, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me, that you would speak to us, that you would speak to us from your word. Because, Father, if, if it is me that is speaking, then everything that I say is going to go in one ear and right out the other. And I don't want that, God, and I know you don't want that. So Holy Spirit, I invite you to come here today and speak to us. And even now, work in the hearts of everyone out there who, who are watching, everyone, out here, everyone that's present here today, that you would speak to them, that you would stir in their hearts. So thank you, Father, so much. We commit this morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you hadn't heard uh, last Monday morning, my sweet mom went home to be with the Lord and uh, she had the best Valentine's Day ever when she was reunited with my dad, who left us nearly 12 years ago. And by the way, today's his birthday. He would have, he would have turned 101 if, if he was here. But he's, he lives eternally in heaven now with my mom. And it, it really was bittersweet uh, for my brother and me to lose her. But we were thrilled because she was finally set free from her body. And she is alive uh, at home with the Lord. Um, you know, these last two years have been terribly difficult for her because her interactions uh, with her family and with her friends were severely curtailed due to COVID. I mean, even after she was hospitalized nearly three weeks ago with some heart issues, we weren't allowed to visit her. Um, and so by the time we were finally allowed to see her, uh, she declined to the point that we knew that she had only a very, very short time to live. And uh, her final few days were spent in hospice and the Lord took her home, carried her home on Valentine's Day morning, a little more than a week after her 95th uh, birthday. And in this COVID season, we've been, um, we're still trying to figure out when it is we can gather to celebrate her life, but we hope it will be very, very soon. So uh, Cheryl and I, Larry, my brother Larry and, and his wife Dee, uh, once wanna thank you so much for your prayers and support during this time. I have truly felt, for those of you who knew about what happened to my mom, I've really sensed your prayers all throughout this week. I really have. And, um, and for all the ways that many of you expressed your kindness and love to her, for those of you who knew her, I, I can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for just loving my mom. Now, if you're joining us for the first time today, we're in a series called Now What? 
And in this series, we've been exploring how it is that we live given the insan insanity and certainty of the times. And uh, as you all know by now, it isn't just COVID that we've been dealing with in these last two years. Let me show you what I mean. Last week, the Washington Times published a story about what Americans believe is going on in our country today and our society today, and that is it is declining. That's what the survey said, Washington Times last week. The Times cited a survey taken by the Trafalgar Group, which found that a whopping 76.8% of Americans, Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, believe that Here's a quote, and I'll put it up here for you, that American society and culture is in a state of decay. That's what Americans believe today, 76% of them, that we are in a state of decay. And so not only have we had to deal with COVID the last two years, but it has been COVID in the midst of a cultural decline. It is COVID plus cultural disintegration. And we can see it all around us. We are bombarded by it every single day. Let me give you just one example. At the beginning of the year, Apple introduced 37 new emojis that you will soon be able to get on your iPhone. And one of the emojis is this character right here, the pregnant man. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. When I saw this for the first time, it was on the news, my reaction was the same as Piers Morgan's who tweeted, Words fail me. Hashtag, the world's gone nuts. Now, I don't believe, I don't think he's a Christ follower. To my knowledge, he's not a Christ follower. But even he says, words fail me, and hashtag, the world's gone nuts. And, and for me, that, kind of, that really resonated with me. The, world, the world's gone nuts, and words fail me. And for Christ followers, it begs the question, now what? Now what? How do we live in the midst of a world that has gone nuts. How do we do that? Well, for the answer, uh, I want you to open up God's word and I want you to, gr everyone grab a Bible, turn to the Old Testament book of Amos, open it up on your app. Prep, you know, my preference is you bring a Bible to church. And for those of you who are at home uh, or watching at your office, you can, you can open up your Bibles to Amos uh, chapter one. And Amos is, is a it's found toward the end of the Old Testament after the big books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then after two little books, Hosea and Joel, and then you'll come to Amos, all right? But I wanna give you some background before I read this, Amos chapter one. First of all, Amos was a shepherd. He was a sheep herder, and he lived around 760 BC in a small little village called Tekoa, just about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Well, one day God called Amos to be a prophet, and God commanded him to speak to the nation of Israel because Israel had become rotten to the core. Now, Israel was actually doing quite well at the time as a nation. It was prospering, it was, it was strong, but the people had become morally bankrupt. They were morally bankrupt and their culture had tanked. And it wasn't just them, it was everyone around them. Because that's what culture does. It has a, has a, the tendency is that it, it can influence everyone around you. And, and I think that's true. I think that we see that here uh, as well in our world. But uh, if, uh, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of jump around here, all right? So start in uh, Amos chapter 1, and let me show you what was going on. The first verse, Amos 1, verse 3. 
It says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. All right, so now this may, the language here may be a little bit confusing and hard to understand. So let me read it to you in the New Living Translation paraphrase, you know, and I'll put it right, put it for you right underneath that verse. But it says this, this is what the Lord says. The people of Damascus have sinned again and again. And I will not let them go unpunished. They beat down my people in Gilead as grain is threshed with iron sledges. All right, so here's what the Lord said in this verse, uh, first verse we're looking at. The people of Damascus, they beat up other people. They beat up other people. In case you're wondering, Damascus was not in Israel. It was one of Israel's neighbors. Today, it is the capital of Israel's neighbor, Syria. Now, I don't know this, but for a short time, Damascus was actually under Hebrew control. It was under Israelite control. And according to the ESV translation, if you look at the ESV translation, they threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. The word threshed in Hebrew means to trample. All right, and the word sledges refers to implements that were sharp and pointed. And so this tells us that the people of Damascus threshed or trampled on people and they literally cut them down with these weapons that were very, very sharp. They cut them down. And so this tells us that the culture there in Syria, in Damascus, was one of violence and domination. Second verse, Amos chapter 1, verse 6. It says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, and I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. All right, so stop right there. This was a reference to another one of Israel's uh, neighbors, Gaza. You've heard of the Gaza Strip. It's a territory there in Israel. And the people in Gaza enslaved other people. That's what this is telling us. They enslaved them and they put them in chains. They subjugated them to their will. They made them slaves. And so their culture was marked by oppression and injustice. Third verse, Amos 1 verse 11. It says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Again, this is another one of Israel's uh, neighbors, the Edomites, and they raged against other people. They too cut down other people with the sword, spilled their blood on the streets. And it says here that they did these things to the members of their own family, to their brothers, it says. And then it says they cast off all pity. In other words, they were completely heartless. They were totally merciless in what they did. And their culture was typified by cruelty, by bloodshed, and by cold-heartedness. And when I read this, it reminded me of an incident I heard about on Friday, but it actually occurred last month when a 70-year-old man was killed in a hit-and-run crash on Manchester and Van Ness, not too far from here. Here's a photo of the video surveillance that caught the SUV just as it was about to hit the man, and he was in a crosswalk. Incident occurred around 9.30 at night, and uh, the LAPD said that after the collision, the driver stopped, got out of his car, went to check on the man, returned to his car, and sped off. He cast aside all pity. He... He was a cold-hearted killer. That's what this man was or, or woman was. And that's what they were like. That was the culture back then. Here's a fourth verse. And this one is directed straight at Israel, not at her neighbors. This would be Amos chapter 2. So flip over to the next chapter. Verse 7. 
says, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go in the same girl and so that, so that my holy name is profane. So what this tells us is that Israel turned their backs on the afflicted. They too were cold-hearted. And get this, father and son shared the same girl. They shared the same girl. The, word, the Hebrew word for girl refers to a young lady. They shared the same young lady. And thus, Israel's culture was marked by selfishness and self-obsession. It was all about them. They could care less about anyone else. It was all about their wants and about their needs. And when it came to sex, nothing was off limits. Go for it. Do whatever you want. Even a father and son can share the same girl. And so these are the things that characterize the, the culture of Amos's day. It tells us in chapter 1 and chapter 2, rage and slavery and injustice and oppression and bloodshed and violence and sexual immorality and heartlessness and an utter disregard for anyone else. And here's what else I want you to know about the people who engaged in these practices. Amos chapter 2 verse 8 says, and they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God, and they drank wine of those who have been fined. They would go into the house of God, these people. They would go into the house of God, and they would lay before the altar, and then they would sin. In other words, this verse tells us that they were religious. They were religious. They had a form of godliness about them. But in the way that they lived, they denied its power. They may, may, they may have been religious, but they were spiritually corrupt. Their culture wasn't decaying. It had decayed. It had tanked. It had hit rock bottom. And when I read this, I thought, this is beginning to sound like us. It's beginning to sound like us. On Friday morning, as I was preparing this message, I came a, a, one of the news notifications popped up on my phone, and I came across a story about a 78-year-old woman sitting in a Baptist church in Clarksville, Tennessee, this week. She was at church this week. And while she sat there, maybe it was for a prayer meeting or midweek service, I don't know, she was, there, was a, there was a woman sitting in front of her and there was a woman sitting behind her. The, the, the pews were kind of empty around her. I saw the video, sickened me. But the woman in front of her turned to her and asked her for prayer. So she reached out to her, they held hands and she prayed. They, this little woman prayed for her, the 78-year-old woman. Meanwhile, the woman behind her reached over, opened her purse, and stole her wallet. You see, prayer was just a ruse. They were, they were in on it, apparently. And the prayer was a ruse, and it was a distraction to steal from the 78-year-old woman in church. It's amazing what's going on today. And you know how it is that people, the people in Amos' time got to where they were at. You know, you know how they got to where they were at? It's the same way we're getting to where we're at. Amos chapter 2 verse 4 says this. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. You see, they rejected the laws of the Lord. They didn't keep his statutes. 
And I want you to keep that word statutes on the back burner of your mind because I'm going to come back to it in a, little, in a moment. But as you know, the laws of God were given to the Jews. They were given to Moses more than 500 years before this occurred. And that included the Ten Commandments. And the Jews had the laws of God. It was in the Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament. We call it the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch, or the laws of God, were designed to be the template for their culture. It was designed to be a template for their culture. And it was all spelled out there, how they were to live their lives. But what did they do? They rejected the template. They rejected God's laws. And they didn't obey God's laws. They did what they wanted to do. And that's why their culture disintegrated. And that's why our culture is beginning to, to, to nosedive. Because we are not obeying God's laws. See, I believe that God intended for his words and his scriptures and his laws to, be, to set the culture straight and to be a template for our culture on how we live our lives. Now, obviously, every people group and nation has its own cultural distinctives. Every culture does. Every, every people group does. Uh, for example, in, in most Asian homes, it is proper to take off your shoes before you go into the house. I mean, that's what we do at, at our house. We have everyone, everyone takes off their shoes. It's not even a forethought. I mean, a thought. We just take off our shoes. But, but uh, most Asians are polite, and they don't want to ask uh, their guests to take off their shoes. And so they might hang a sign like this one on the front door, which says, welcome, please remove your shoes. Thank you. Uh, they don't want to ask them, their guests to take off the shoes, so they put up a sign like that. And some Asian people are so polite, they're so polite that they feel like they need to give a reason why their guests should take off their shoes, and so they might hang a sign like this. Since little fingers touch our floors, please remove your shoes at the door. And then if you don't have children, you might inject a little levity into your request with a sign like this. Please remove your shoes. The dog needs something to chew on. <laughs> and then finally, there are some Asian people, and they aren't polite at all. And they'll tell you straight to your face with a sign like this. How do I say it nicely? Take off your shoes. Right? And so, but here's what you need to know, right? And that's kind of fun, but here's what you need to know. Cultures don't rise and fall based on whether or not you leave your shoes at the door or whether you wear them into the house. Cultures don't rise and fall on those kinds of things, but cultures will rise and fall depending on whether or not the people follow or reject God's laws. More than 200 years ago, this man right here, Scottish philosopher Alexander Teitler of the University of Edinburgh, studied all of the great civilizations of the world, studied all of them. And he found on average that great empires last only around 200 years. America is a little bit past 200 years. He said they last about 200 years and then they fall apart. They disintegrate. And he wanted to know why. He wanted to figure out why. So he studied all these civilizations. And he noticed a pattern. He, he noticed that they, they go through a cycle. And here's what he discovered. He said first civilizations go from bondage to spiritual faith. And we'll put the cycle up here for you. They go from bondage to spiritual faith. And I thought, he didn't give this example, but I thought Israel would be a perfect example of this. They were in bondage to Egypt for more than 400 years. And while they were there, they were in total spiritual darkness, a spiritual wilderness. And then God sent Moses to them 
to set them free. And Israel believed. They, their faith was renewed. Tytler then said that spiritual faith leads to great courage. Leads to great courage. And so they got, they mustered up a lot of courage and they decided to follow Moses out of Egypt. It took a lot of courage. And then Tyler found that great courage leads to liberty. And after the Israelites fled Egypt, God parted the Red Sea and the Israelites made it safely to the other side and now, and now they were free. They stepped out in faith and now they were free. They were liberated. And then Tyler found that liberty, after liberty came abundance. It leads to abundance. And God blessed the Jews. Even though they were in the desert, he blessed them, provided for them. They had so much manna that was coming out of their ears. They had plenty of water to drink. And their nation flourished and it grew. Tyler then found that abundance leads to selfishness. After a while, he becomes selfish and self-indulgent and self-obsessed. And what did the Jews do? Started complaining. Started grumbling. After all God did for them, they started complaining. And so God called Moses up to Mount Sinai and he gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them the laws, which you just talked about. He gave them a template for their culture so that they would keep the faith and so that if they followed God's laws, they would be blessed. God would bless them. And what did they do instead? They made a golden calf and they worshiped it instead. Next, he said, selfishness leads to complacency and their faith began to wane. The Jews didn't continue to trust God the way they did at the very beginning. When Moses sent spies, when they got close to the promised land, Moses sent spies into the land and they came back and they didn't trust their leaders. They didn't trust Moses. They, they complained about Moses. They wanted to kill Moses, in fact. And they even said, oh, I wish we went back to Egypt. Oh, if we never left Egypt. And the Lord became fed up with them. And then complacency, Tyler says, complacency leads to apathy. You don't care anymore. The Jews are like, whatever. And their faith became ritualistic. They turned to idols. And finally, finally Tytler found that apathy leads to dependence, perhaps self-dependence, perhaps dependence on self-dependence, on, even on government. And when people become dependent, that leads right back to bondage. These were Tytler's findings, not my findings. These were his findings. He wrote this more than 200 years ago. I mean, you can almost apply this to our own country. We started out in bondage to the British. And there was a revolution, the American Revolution. And it took great courage and great faith and our nation was born and was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, one nation under God. And then we had liberty. And then that led to abundance. God blessed our nation. He has blessed us. More than any other nation in the world, he's blessed us. And that has slowly over time has led to selfishness. It's all about us. It's, about, it's all about our wants, about our needs. And that's led to complacency, spiritual complacency, spiritual apathy and dependence. And with each passing cycle, we have drifted further and further away from God and from adherence to his word. And that's why Apple's emoji is so telling. It is so telling because it is an indication of how far we have fallen in this country. It also tells me that most people today care less about what God's think, what God thinks, and they care less about what the Bible says. That's what it tells me. Is that you? I hope not. Because the Bible is God's word. It is God's word. And this is God's template for our culture. This is what it needs to be. 
Whether the year is 760 BC when Amos was alive or 2022, we must hold fast to God's word and not stray from it. You know, the other day I was going through some of my mom's things and I came across a manila envelope and um, I had never seen it before and there was a bulge in it and I never opened it up. So I opened it up. When I looked inside, I was shocked and I was delighted. I found $100,000 in cash. I wish. <laughs> My brother's eyes lit up when I told him that. No, 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 I, I wish. No, there was no money in it. What was in it was even more valuable than money, right? Because inside was a small stack of letters and notes that my father had written to my mom. I had never seen them before. Here's one of the letters. So I sat there this week and I read the letters for the very first time. Here's one of the letters he wrote to her, dated March the 2nd, 1946. That was 76 years ago. It started, Dearest Yo. My, mo- my mom's middle name was uh, Yoshko, and so he called her Yo. And uh, here's what he said. Reach safely at 11 p.m. Probably will sleep at Moriyama's tonight. I still got to hustle around quite a bit before nightfall. Do take care of yourself, darling, and don't forget vitamins, plenty of sleep, and rest. As soon as I settle down a bit, I'll let you know the address. Until then, I'll be thinking of you. And then the second page of the letter said, out here, it's just like country and very warm today. Love, champ, Regard, regards to all. My dad's name was Champ. It was Champ, Mary, Gary, and Larry. I don't know how you got Champ, but it's, that was his name. Now, based on the date of the letter, I believe he wrote this just soon after they were released from the Japanese internment camp uh, where they had been incarcerated for about five years. And now, because they didn't have any homes to go back to because their homes had been taken away, he went out first scouting around for a place for them to live. And so I think he went down to the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, looking around. And, and when he got there, he, he, he wrote this letter to her. And uh, what I couldn't get over was that he called my mom Darling. Did you know that? He called her Darling. He's like, what? He, he called her Darling? That's crazy. And another letter, he started the letter, and I'll put it up here for you. He started it, my dearest wife. Doesn't <laughs> sound like my dad. And he, and he closed it by saying, Darling, don't worry about me. Take care of yourself. I do miss you. And honest, I love you. Love, champ. And I go, wow, this is crazy. That does not sound like my dad. It's so mushy, you know. <laughs> if I didn't see the letter with my very own eyes, well, I wouldn't have believed it if somebody told me. But here it is, right? And no wonder my mom kept these letters because these were his words straight out of his heart and out of his mouth. They were his words. And um, in the same way, the Bible is God's word straight out of his heart and out of his mouth to you and me. It's like a letter. This is like his love letter to us on how we are to live our lives. Here's how Paul explained it in 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul wrote, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul said that all scriptures breathed out by God. The key to this passage is that phrase, breathed out by God. And to help you understand what this means, let me show you another verse. Job 32, verse 8. We'll put it up here for you. Job 32, 8 says, but it is the spirit in the man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. 
Notice that phrase, breath of the Almighty. These two phrases mean exactly the same thing. They are identical in meaning. And you can actually interchange one with the other. You, you can substitute one with the other. So that's 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is the breath of the Almighty. They're the same thing. In other, and the significance of these two phrases is, is so staggering because it means that the words in this book are the very words of God. They're the breath of the Almighty. This is the breath of the Almighty. Therefore, if you want to hear from God, if you want to hear from God and you want to know what he thinks and you want to know what is on his heart, you want to know how you want to relate to somebody or you want to know how it is that you live your life, then all you need to do is open up this book and start reading it because this is God's word and he will speak to you from it. You know, the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. It's got 176 verses in it. 176 verses in it, and in it, there are many synonyms of, uh, for the word of God, many synonyms. And for example, in some places, I'm going to just run through these real quickly for you, just put them up here for you. But in some places, the word of God is referred to simply as the word, such as in Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure by, keeping, by guarding it according to your word? The word of God is also referred to as the law in verse 18. Can also be referred to, is also referred to as precepts in verse 15. It's also referred to as testimonies in verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. It's referred to as his commandments in verse 6. It's also referred to as rules in verse 7. And then in, for, and 29, 21 times in Psalm 119, 21 times it is referred to as statutes, such as in verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. And I told you I would come back to this word. According to Dr. Stephen Larson, who was a preaching professor at Master Ceremony uh, Seminary, the, the word statutes refers to things that are etched in stone. These are things that are etched in stone. So if you would get a chisel, for example, and carve something into rock, you can't change it. Once you put it in there, you can't change it. You can't erase it. You can't, you can't hit the backspace button and delete it. Right? The same is true with the word of God. It is etched in stone. That's what this is saying when it's, it uses the word statutes. It is etched in stone for all time, and it cannot be amended. It cannot be changed. Psalm 119, verse 89. If you go all the way down to verse 89, it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens, which means it is irrevocable. It is immutable. It doesn't change. God said of himself in Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and God's word doesn't change either. God's word doesn't change with culture. God's word doesn't change over time. And, and that's because God doesn't change. Yet a lot of people believe a lot of people believe, including a lot of Christians and a lot of pastors, that the Bible should change with the times. That it ought to keep up with the times. They believe that as society's views on marriage and family, on marriage and family, the family changes, the Bible should change along with it. And they believe that as culture's view on sex and gender changes, the Bible should also change. But it doesn't. Because the word of God is etched in stone and it is firmly fixed in the heavens. It doesn't change. Therefore, I just want you to know, and I've told you this before, but here at South Bay Community Church, we will never attempt to align the scriptures with culture. 
Instead, culture needs to get itself aligned with Scripture, right? We will never align ourselves, get Scripture trying to align with public opinion. Well, this is what everyone thinks. Well, we could care less about what everyone thinks. All we care about is what God thinks. We should always be concerned about what God says in his word because this is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. 100%. And day in and day out, we will endeavor to show you to the best of our ability what it says. And that's why Pastor Greg and I, especially as, as your main teaching pastors, we spend hours and hours and hours every week just studying God's word, trying to figure it out so that we can deliver it to you and, and rightly divide the truth so that we're not teaching you something that may be incorrect. And so pray for us that we, that we always get it right, right? Because we, people have different opinions about scripture, right? Well, it's, your opinions doesn't matter. The question is when God wrote it, what did he mean? That's what we want to figure out. What did he mean when he wrote it? That's what we're concerned about. Can you imagine what would happen if every single American, how about every single person that goes to church accepted, read God's word and accepted it for what it is, the word of God. Can you imagine what would happen in America if everyone did that? I believe the culture of disintegration that we're witnessing today would reverse course overnight. Well, unfortunately that didn't happen under Amos's watch and I don't expect it to happen here in America. So you know what God did? He pronounced judgment on all those nations that I read about at the very beginning. He, he pronounced judgment on all those nations that rejected God's laws, including Israel. And when he did, he accompanied it with a, 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 a dire warning of something that was going to happen to them. And I want you to take a look at it in Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Here's what he said. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. See, God told Israel that because they rejected the word of the Lord, a day was coming when they would be visited by a famine. Not a famine of food and water, but a famine of the word of God, a hearing of the word of God. In other words, one day, because they rejected God's laws, God's word would be completely ripped away from them. It would be ripped away from them. It would become, it will become completely unavailable to them. And no matter how much they want to read God's word, and no matter how much they want to hear the proclamation of God's word, it's not going to happen. It won't be there. And on that day, when lost souls wander around aimlessly wanting to hear God's voice, all they will hear is nothing, silence. That was God's prophecy to them. And I believe this prophecy applies to us as well. A day is coming when there will be a famine in our land and it will be a famine for God's word. In fact, I think we're beginning to see glimpses of it, glimpses of it even today. A number of years ago, I met a lady in our, our lobby. Her name is Tracy. This is well before the pandemic. Tracy was so excited to be here at our church. And she said, I'm from St. Louis or from the St. Louis area in Missouri. And uh, she said she was visiting her daughter who, who attends our church. And, uh, and Tracy was so excited because she said that she had been watching us online 
Um, and the reason she said she watched this online was because she said, and these were her words, she said she couldn't find a church, a single church in the St. Louis area that taught the word of God. That's what she said. And I, I said, well, I kind of find that hard to believe, you know. And she says, it's true. She says, I've gone to every church in the St. Louis area, and I can't find a single church that teaches the word of God. And we're hearing that more and more. Pastors who water down the scriptures. Pastors who aren't teaching the word of God. I mean, it's today, many of the largest churches in America don't teach the Bible. Or they might throw in a verse or a verse here or a verse there. And their messages are all about feel good. Let's, the feel good variety. Let's just all feel good about one another. But they don't teach the word of God. And thus, I believe we're beginning to see touches of a famine in our land, a famine for the word of God. And then one day when the church is raptured, when we're taken up to heaven, when there aren't any faithful pastors and when there aren't any faithful Christians, Christ followers left, at least they won't be for a while, there won't be anyone there to proclaim the word of God. And that's when the famine will really kick in. And, and this is just my guess, this is just my guess, but in all likelihood, the Antichrist, who will become the ruler of the world, will probably order the removal of all uh, online Christian content. Take it all down, right? So that you won't be able to watch any scripture-based messages. I, I believe you, you better watch our YouTube messages while you can because one day it's gonna all come down. First, because we won't be around to pay the bill, but it's all gonna come down, right? <laughs> It's all going to come down, and not, not, not only that, I, he'll probably shut down every single Bible app and church app that's out there. And so that the scriptures and messages will become completely unavailable. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he even, the Antichrist even bans Bibles. And it will be, and then it will be just as Amos 8:12 prophesied it would be. People shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. So let me ask you a question. How highly do you value God's word? How highly do you value it? How highly do you value what God has written in this book? If you value it, then read it and study it and meditate on it and know it constantly so that when you go out in the world, when you go to work or when you go to school, you won't be... When you, you won't be swayed by culture. You won't be swayed by what social, everyone says on social media. You won't be swayed by public opinion. But you'll be rock solid because you've planted your feet on the word of God. You know, I'm going to close with this. Recently, I started reading some of the works of Charles Spurgeon, that 19th century uh, Baptist preacher in England who was known as the Prince of Preachers. If you want to be inspired, read some of the works of uh, Charles Spurgeon. And I want to close by sharing with you some of the, something he said about, in one of his sermons about the benefits of the Word of God. Here's what he preached one Sunday morning. He said, if you want something more than enlightenment for the understanding and fullness of love to satisfy the heart, if you need practical directions for your everyday life, this book will supply you with them. And every part of the sea of life in which a man may be, if this be his chart, he will not miss his way or suffer ship, spiritual shipwreck. If you are a king, you might learn your duty here. And if you are a beggar or the poorest of the poor, you may find comfort and instruction here. Fathers, you may learn how to manage your household, households. Children, you may learn here the duties of your position in your various relationships. Servants, masters, husbands, wives, sick folk, 
people in robust health, you who are poor and you who are rich. This book is for you all. And when you consult it in the right spirit, it will talk with you all. Into whatever, whatsoever condition you may happen to be cast, this book will follow you. It is such a wonderful book that it adapts itself to all sorts and conditions of men. It whispers softly by the sick man's bedside and is often called aloud as with a trumpet voice amidst the fury of the storm. It has a message for you while you are yet in the heyday of your youth and a promise for you when you lean upon your staff and totter to your grave. It is Biblos, the book, the everyday book full of wisdom for every day in the week, all the year around. And when the circle of life is complete, you will see how the book was equally adapted to the children and to the aged man whose life is just closing. Isn't that great? There is nothing, nothing like the Word of God. There is nothing like this book. Whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're healthy or whether you're sick. Oh, the benefits of the Word of God. On the last night of my mom's life, that would have been Sunday night, I sat by her bedside and I remembered that earlier this, uh, earlier last week, Ann Kim and Carol Shin, uh, who are sisters who lost their dad about two weeks um, earlier, sent me about five pages of scriptures because I shared with them what, was go- what I was going on with my mom. And, and so they replied and sent back five pages of scriptures. They said, we just found these that really encouraged us and we want to encourage you. And we feel kind of strange sending these to you because you're a pastor, but we want to send them to you anyways. And I am so glad they did. Because that night, as I sat there, my, my mom's wife, my life uh, slowly leaving her, I opened up their email again and I, and I opened up that document. And I started reading the scriptures that they sent me. And I read them to her as well. Like Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the same that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And reading the scriptures reminded me that my mom would live even though she died. And I can't even begin to tell you how much comfort and hope that gave me, that brought to my heart, and I know my brothers as well. And so Spurgeon was right. The Bible can be likened to God's letter, and it will speak to little children, and it will speak to those whose lives are coming to an end. So I hope you'll renew your devotion to the Bible. Go home and read it today and tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. I have a hunch my mom read my dad's letters over and over and over. I hope you read the Bible over and over and over. And um, if you do, there'll never be a famine of the word of God in your heart. And then one last thing. 
There's even a word in this book for those of you who aren't God's children. And it's this, John 1:12. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's God's word to all of you who are far away from God. That's God's word to you, all of you who are not his children today. And his word is this, if you believe in him, if you believe in Christ, if you will accept him, then you can become his child. Then you can become one of God's children. And so, take it to heart. That's his letter to you. Do it. Accept him. Believe him. And you will be God's child. I hope you'll do that. Let's close our time in prayer. As you bow your heads and close your eyes, I'd ask you, how devoted are you to God's word? How much do you value God's word? If your Bible is just sat on a shelf or maybe your Bible app has been unopened for weeks or months, will you just confess that to him and say, God, help me to change that from this day forward and help me to begin to take in your word. Will you tell him that? And for those of you who are out there and you can't say for sure that you're a child of God because, man, you've been out there and you're kind of living like the culture and you're just kind of doing your own thing and you've rejected God's laws. God's word today is accept him and believe in him and you can become his child. I hope you will. Why don't you, in fact, right now, why don't you just say that to him? Dear God, I believe in you. I believe that Jesus was your son. And today I accept him into my life. Make me a child of God. Tell him that right now. And you will be a child of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Forgive us when we've treated it like every other book, when in fact, it is the most precious book that has ever been written because the words in it are your words to us. Father, may we have a renewed commitment and devotion and devotion to it. And Father, help us here at South Bay to always proclaim it loudly and clearly and truthfully as it is, not tainted by culture, not tainted by public opinion, but straight Bible. So thank you, Father. Thanks for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.